but sign up at your table for that. Um, so this morning we're going to have a, we're continuing our modern day myths series. And instead of us doing a sermon on marriage, uh, if you want to hear a whole series on relationships, dating, marriage, we, we did one last spring. And instead of me just sharing what I shared back then, we decided to have uh, four people um, as like a panel discussion. So we're going to have, in a moment, we're going to have uh, Mr. Uh, Raymond and Amy Jimenez will join us up on the stage. And also Chris and Leah Vernar will get on the stage as well. I'm going to pray for us and we'll have them join us on the stage. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful and grateful that we get to, um, to dig into a topic that we know is supposed to point us to you. We know that marriage and relationships uh, so often um, just point to themselves. And we know that you have something so much bigger than, than that in mind. We know that you want us to look to you um, as a result of being in uh, these kinds of relationships. We pray, God, for um, just peace and wisdom as these guys get on stage and share with us what you want uh, us to hear this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's welcome them to the stage, guys. Come on up, guys. I really appreciate them doing this. So I'm going to turn this over to them. And I've got an extra mic here. So make sure your mics are all turned on and stuff. And um, and we will get started. So here we go. Good morning. Okay, so we're going to give you like the overarching theme up front of what we guys want, what we want you guys to learn. Um, so we're going to walk through three different myths, kind of how we've seen that, seen that play out in our lives, and then counter that with the truth. So we believe that the deepest longing of the human heart is relational, and we see that like in the Trinity itself and then how God created us in the garden. Um, so we crave a peace and permanence that's just part of how we were made. Um, And we crave being known and accepted, which is um, part of in the garden, like they were unashamed. They were known and they were accepted by each other. Uh, And we think that the culmination of these relational belongings is marriage, which is why it's held in such a high value. Um, And today we want to kind of talk through how those natural and good cravings can create some unrealistic expectations in marriage. Um, So the first myth that we're going to go over is that we're looking for a soulmate, a person who will accept us as we are, yet meet our every need. All right, so I get the the privilege of going over soulmate, which, I mean, I almost figured Leah would go. We're actually splitting it. So I'm going to go over the portion of soulmate which would talk about everyone and she is going to talk about the soulmate as far as it goes with the romantic sense of the word and so when we looked at when we were first looking at this i wanted to see okay what what does the world define a soulmate as so as trustworthy as uh the huffington post is this is where i looked and found this definition. Uh, This is a definition by Kaylin Rosenberg, and she says that a soulmate isn't always wrapped in the perfect package physically or in terms of life circumstances, nor does it mean that the relationship will come without challenges. She says, yet the difference is that the life circumstances and the difficult challenges are a strengthening power that becomes the glue that keeps you together through the difficult times and helps each of you become your uh, most authentic self. So at, at first glance, this seems like, okay, that's, a, that's pretty legit. I can get along with that until I get to the end of it and I see, well, what does it mean to become your most authentic self? Kind of like the whole idea of, you know, be true to yourself. But is that what we're called to do is to be true to ourselves? and have others help us be true to ourselves, or we called for something more, something, I'll say, on a grander scale. 
so what we will do is we are going to take a look at what God calls us for and calls each of us together for. Uh, what we'll do is, if you've got your Bibles or your phones, uh, we are going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse 4 through 9. All right, so it says, that's uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. It says, I give thanks to you, my God, always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and, and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So what we're going to look at here specifically is the word fellowship found there in verse 9. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a... uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of a Greek lesson. So you could take this to all your friends and say, hey, guess what? I learned Greek today. Uh, the word fellowship there comes from the Greek word koinonia, which actually is a closer definition of a form of fellowship. So fellowship's one way of defining the word, but it's a lot closer than just fellowship. It is a fellowship between you and God, so it's a vertical fellowship and also a horizontal fellowship, us and everyone else, every other believer. So this here is talking about a fellowship that's not just a soulmate, oh, somebody who gets me and somebody who can help me be a better me, but this is somebody who I am connected with in an intimate way, an intimate way that is only through Christ. So it's this sense that I am connected vertically to God and then horizontally with each other, with other believers. So the question may be, well, what does this have to do with soulmate or finding your soulmate? Well, with that, I'm going to actually go over, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 3, and then verse 12 and verse 14. Right, so in Hebrews 3, verse 12 through 14, he actually uses the same word, koinonia, to talk about us who are fellow believers. And here it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ... If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So that part right there where it says that we share in Christ is also talking about the same type of fellowship. That we share in Christ with Christ and then with each other. And that we have the same goal, which would be to glorify Christ, to grow more like Christ. And so we take this and contrast it with... What the world tells us is our soulmate is to, hey, be more, this is the word I'm looking for here, be more true to yourself. But what we see in scripture is not telling you, hey, be more true to yourself. It's telling you, be more like Christ. Be one with each other, work with each other towards this goal of being like Christ, being sanctified and bringing glory to him. And so I try to think of, how do I put this practically to where we can actually she actually, she looked at my notes and started questioning what I was going to use. So <clears throat> we see that we think differently here. Um, so I try to find out a practical way where we can look at this, where we have this fellowship with one another. And how does this practically look? So this is semi-practical. Has anyone seen Lord of the Rings? I hope the majority of you have seen this. Okay. So what is the first movie called? 
Okay, the fellowship of the ring. What is the idea or the concept of this fellowship? Come on, guys. You said you've seen this. Come on. To destroy the ring. So do they all share one common goal and one idea? Yes. So I heard that no. <laughs> so the whole idea or concept of this fellowship is, hey, we're going to destroy this ring. Same thing amongst believers. Our goal or our idea is to glorify Christ and be sanctified. And so I was thinking about this. How do I tie this in? Well, the whole idea is to have this fellowship that has the same goal and to only be in fellowship, be in marriage with those who are within this fellowship or within this community, because that's something that we really drive here in this church is community. And so I was thinking, well, how do I take Lord of the Rings and show you this community? Well, let's skip to the second movie where Gollum shows up. Frodo leaves the fellowship. Sam follows him. And then Gollum shows up, and he wants to join with Frodo. And Sam tells him no. But we go ahead and we see that, well, Gollum joins this little fellowship now. And is Gollum's same idea of what to do with the ring the same as Sam's and Frodo's? No, he wants it for himself. So basically we see that in the end of the movie, Golem leads him to, you know, the giant spider and bites off Frodo's finger and stuff like that. And because he wanted this and wasn't going for the same goal as, as, say, Frodo or Sam were. And so to kind of tie this into scripture where we see that, you know, Jesus tells us not to be unequally yoked or anything like that. It's to, we must marry within this fellowship, if you will, that we have with other believers or else we will be led astray. We can look at Solomon as an example of that. And, I mean, it's not just his many wives that he had. He had like, what was it, 300 wives, 700 concubines? Anyways, it's not just the number that he had. It's that they would lead him astray into worship of other idols. So we see within this concept of this fellowship is that Golem would lead Sam and Frodo astray into the spiders uh, to Shelob. And this was completely off course and not what their goal was. So same thing with us that, you know, if we look to marry outside of our fellowship that we were within and believers, that to lead us astray. And, I mean, there's the warning. Be careful unless whoever you're with tries to feed you giant spiders or bite your fingers off. So. The reason I did not know that he was going to do that, that was one of our first fights. Fun fact, when we moved into the apartment, is I didn't understand why we had to have a golem statue in the guest bathroom. And we have three sets of the Lord of the Rings movies that I have seen none of. And they are on display in our living room. So this is that's a very spot-on Chris example. So the movies and media I was going to talk about where we see the this idea of soulmate I asked some of my girls like what shows you guys watch and they're they're all based off of relationships like you're rooting for that couple to get together so the ones given um new girl like Nick and Jess are finally together um gossip girl with Chuck and Blair that Cam said you could rip that couple apart was the quote she gave me on that uh Parks and Recreation The Office I don't remember oh Grey's Anatomy and High School Musical was the final one. So that one, was, that one was added onto the list. There you go, Michael. So I thought it was interesting, the, the Grey's Anatomy example, because I think that that shows the element of that soulmate, that you have to have that person for your life to have meaning. I don't, even, I don't watch the show, but when Derek Shepard died uh, two years ago, sorry, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's old. Spoiler alert. Um, but I think that that was the tragedy because Meredith is a successful surgeon. They have kids. She has her own life. But who is she if she's not McDreamy's wife? And so the myth was that none of her accomplishments, none of who she was mattered because she was no longer McDreamy, McDreamy's wife, which is he's a neurosurgeon and we call him McDreamy. Um, so that's something that we want to like fight against that idea for you guys, that I need that person um, to complete me. 
And we, because we believe that the truth of marriage is, this is just how it's described in the book, two flawed people coming together to create a space of stability, love, and consolation. And we see that in 2 Corinthians five seventeen through 18 that says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Um, so I think that that idea of reconciliation and maintaining the oneness in a relationship is really important, um, as is the new creation part. So Chris and I have a plaque um, that reads, I love you for all that you have been and all that you're yet to be. And I can confidently say that about Chris because he is continually being made new in Christ because of how he lives his life. Um, that is his primary relationship. Like he said, the, his, the vertical has to be right before the horizontal. The relationship with me will ever be correct. Um, and this, I think that this fights the myth that one person can complete another because humans are consistently changing. Um, we're just dynamic people. And so the person that I married not even a year and a half ago is not the same person that I am married to today, and he won't be the same person a year and a half from now um, because we change. And I trust that he is changing to look more like Christ because that is, that is how he lives his life. There we go. Well, I can definitely attest to what Leah just said. Uh, she and Chris have been married for one year, and Raymond and I have been married for 22 years. And so we, we come at, at this, um, this myth from a little bit different perspective. But I can assure you that Raymond is not the person who completes me. I, I may have been like you when I was young, thinking that there was somebody out there who could. But I can tell you from experience that that is just a lie, an absolute lie. I wanted to remind you that we were created to be at peace. Remember in Genesis uh, 1 and 2, where it tells about Adam and Eve being created in this amazing relationship with God, at peace with him completely, walking with him in the cool of the day in the garden, at peace with themselves. They were naked and unashamed. They weren't ashamed of themselves in the garden. At peace with one another, because they were able to be, um, to be coexisting with different roles, but not trying to grab for power or, or assert dominance over each other. And they were at peace with their work. They, they had a good job to do that God gave them to do to glorify him, to have dominion over the earth. And they did that with, with, with ultimate peace. And sometimes we think that all peace really means is just the absence of, of chaos in our lives. But peace in that sense, the way that God created us in the garden, peace was, in the Hebrew definition, completeness or wholeness. We were created to be at peace with those four relationships, with God, with ourself, with one another, and with our work. And sin came in and destroyed that, really broke that relation, all four of those relationships. And we are hungry, hungry, hungry to get that back. And we could spend all day talking about that, but the truth is that Jesus is the one that reconciled or brought those relationships back into harmony for us. That's what, what Leah just read in Second Corinthians, that Jesus, it says that Second um, Corinthians five seventeen, where she started, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us. That means brought us back into harmony of relationship, brought us back to peace or completeness, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation so that we can be reconciled to one another. So I'm going to let Raymond share some, some scriptures about that. Is it on? All right. I can't hear. Um, I'm going to read First Thessalonians 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and make, you, make your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. That scripture in itself tells you there is no soulmate that's going to complete you. God completes you. God makes you whole. God makes you holy. 
I'm going to ask a question, and I want you to not raise your hands. You can raise your hands in your head, but not outwardly. Marriage is about two broken people coming together. My question is, how many of you, again, don't raise your hands, but how many of you have parents that seem to argue all the time? Sometimes you listen in and you think, man, are they really arguing about that? And maybe you're thinking to yourself, when I get married, it's not going to be like that. That's what I said when I was a little boy. And for the first 15 years of my life, I blamed it on my father, who was an alcoholic. He was the reason my parents argued all the time. But he had a change of life. In the last 10 years, he didn't touch a drop. And somehow, the arguments continued. And I don't know why. They were both Christian. They're both faithful. I don't know why. I said, that's not going to be me. I want to love just like in the movies. But you guys know that's not really love at all. I've actually heard, overheard my kids talking about us saying, are they really arguing about that? And I've been convicted. But what do you do? What do you do? Why is it so hard? I'm going to read another scripture that has, we don't typically associate with marriage. But you know, all scripture is God-breathed. And all scripture is applicable in all things. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to paraphrase this scripture a little. It's in Luke chapter 18. It's about a Pharisee and a tax collector, but it, it's about a Pharisee and a tax collector, but it's really not about a Pharisee and a tax collector. If you read that and think, oh, I'm not a Pharisee and I'm not a tax collector, that doesn't pertain to me, you're missing the point. So today I'm going to make it about a married couple. <clears throat> Luke chapter 18, verse 9. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Four people went up to the temple to, pay, to pray. Two couples went up to the temple to pray. One couple stood by themselves and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like these other people, broken marriages, evildoers, adulterers, unfaithful, abusers, or even like my own spouse here. I thank you that I'm not like them. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I got. I know the Bible inside and out. I worship. I'm in community. I've figured this marriage thing out. But the other couple stood at a distance and would not even look up to heaven. But they beat their breast and said, God, have mercy on us. We are sinners. The reason we chose this format today is I want you to see the biblical truths displayed in a newlywed couple over there and in a couple that's been married for a couple of decades. I guarantee you, I mean, you might look at Chris and Leah and think, they're such a cute couple. I want to be like that someday. And I want you to see that. I want you to see that. I really, I, and, and I, I wanted them to join us up here because I know they give you that image. I want to speak authentically to you. I don't know how you see Amy and I, but I want to tell you that we come before the altar of God to worship. We are not confident in our own righteousness. We are two broken people who haven't quite figured this marriage thing out. It's been very tempting, and I mean it with all my heart. It's been tempting to say, Leah, Chris, you guys take it. Because we haven't figured this out. Who are we to stand before you and tell you about marriage? We haven't figured it out. It is very hard. It is two broken people relying fully on the grace of God, relying fully on the mercy of God. That's the bad news. And then let me tell you the good news. This is the only way it works. You have to fully rely on the grace and the mercy of God. If you rely on yourself and your own little charming husband or wife, you will fail. I mean it. We didn't feel worthy to be up here talking about marriage. 
we rely fully on the grace and the mercy of God. And that is what makes a successful marriage. We are running short on time, so we're going to, we're going to, we, I want you to think about how these truths break the myths that the world tells you. And we're going to have time for questions later, but let's move on to part two. So myth number two is that marriage is just an expression of intense romantic love and about personal expression, an exercise of radical autonomy based on my feelings. And we buy into this myth when we think that um, marriage or that the wedding is the mountaintop instead of just the bottom of the mountain, really. Um, So we think that marriage is everything, not knocking on Disney, but most Disney movies end with the fireworks in the castle and they live happily ever after, right? That's that's where that story ends. Um, But that's not where our relationship ended um, or even like the apex of everything. We told some of you guys yesterday, this is again, just a fun fact. So Chris and I were on our honeymoon and this was our first fight after we were married. We still have different interpretations of this story, but we were on a beach and I, I think I was already laying in the hammock. He says I was sitting down and I'm clumsy, but my side of the story is that he flipped me on my head and I had a slight concussion from the concrete (laughs) under the hammock. Um, so if you think that the honeymoon is the, the high, highlight of the relationship, then that's not true. And he says that that's not true, but that's what I remember. So anyway, the Bible tells us that this is not, that, that this idea um, that marriage is based just off of intense romantic love, that that's not new. So King Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1 tells us that nothing is new under the sun, but I think we've gotten creative at kind of, seeming like they're new ideas. So if the culmination of relationships is, my, or the, the driver of relationships is my desire, I think we see that in app dating, specifically in Tinder, which that's, we, that's a whole nother topic. But I think that if you're familiar with scripture, we see this in two main stories in the Bible. So Samson and Delilah in the book of Judges, and in 2 Samuel, David and Bathsheba. So the underlying story of, or narrative, I guess, of both of those stories is, I see her, I want her, go get her, I have to have her. Um, Me, 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 is what both of those men are saying. And if you know the story, it ends, both of them actually end in death. So Samson ends up dying kind of through everything that happened in his trickery. And then with David and Bathsheba, David has one of his soldiers, Uriah, killed, who was married to Bathsheba, and then their son also dies. So this isn't this idea that it's bad to base relationships just off of personal desire. It, it's in here. It's we didn't create that, um, but that that also means that we need to use this to fight against it. I thought this was interesting. So one of the other stories or movies that was listed in the other story was that couple from The Notebook. And I think that when we think of The Notebook, we think of the young Noah and the young Allie. So we think of Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams. But the bigger story of The Notebook is about a man's like faithful commitment to his wife. So you see in the beginning of the movie, the man goes, or you find out later, this man is reading their love story to his wife who has Alzheimer's and she can't remember. So the doctors tell him, you're crazy, she won't remember. In the book, if any of you read the book instead of just watching the movie. The, and I think the family goes to the nursing home too. And is like, this mom's not going to remember. But he is committed to her. And so if you look at the notebook from the long-standing commitment instead of the passionate and the silly, if I'm a bird, you're a bird, and all everything else that they do in that movie that's crazy it changes the way that you that changes the tone of the movie and I think that that's the commitment that we're called to like don't just look at it from the young couple that's having the fun part of the relationship it's kind of like they said we're we're the younger couple that's we we still think that this is easy but there's a long-standing commitment that's worth a fight even when the people around them are like just give up like it's okay here's your hall pass because that's what they were telling her him like you don't have, she doesn't know that she's married to you, so you can forget too. Um, but, but that's not, as Christians, that's not what we're called to. But it's hard to stick it out. 
So I'm only say this about the hammock. I have witnesses yesterday about how she is in a hammock. You all saw that. (laughs) Thank you. So I am going to talk about the practical aspects of marriage and what it actually starts to look like once you're there. Sure, there's romance in marriage, but the majority of the time, it's not romantic. It's, It's kind of... I mean, it's what, it's, it's life. It's how, how your life is now is what it will be in the future just with somebody else right there with you through all of it. And sometimes life gets dull and boring and, you know, you got to do chores, you got to clean the house, you got to go to work, you got to do school and all this while you're doing it with another person. Uh, About three months in, I want to say, about three months in marriage, I, I don't want to say lost my job because it sounds like I'm fired. They, uh, the managers of the restaurant that I was working in, they're out of state, and they came in, and they were like, hey, surprise, you're closed immediately, effective immediately, right now, today, go home, goodbye. I was like, wait, what? You mean I don't have a job? Are you kidding me? Um, but it was, for me, and if I lost a job and it was just me, oh, I'd go out and get another job, easy enough, but it's both of us. And now we have to make these decisions together. And it's not just me worried about doing me things and taking care of myself. And so I I called her after that. And and she was like, you know what? I've been praying about you going back to school. And I think God answered that prayer. I was like, gee, thanks. You could have asked him to answer it a different way, you know, really. Um, But that's something that we had been talking about was me going back to school. And this was kind of like a, oh, surprise, here's your answer. Go back to school. And so that's kind of like one of the practical ways of looking at what marriage is. It's not just me making decisions for myself, and it's not just me doing whatever I want, but it's us thinking about this and looking at it uh, from the big picture is like, how does this affect both of us now? And, I mean, sometimes it gets boring. Sometimes it's like, well, I'm tired of cleaning up after these cats. You go do it. I'm tired of cleaning up this. You go do it. Or I'm tired of shopping. You go do it. Um, but it's one of those things where it, it isn't always just romantic and nice, and it's not what the movies show. The movie probably closest to it's The Breakup. I mean, if anybody's ever seen The Breakup, <laughs> that's, that's pretty close to what marriage is like at times. Um, but the thing is, unlike The Breakup, this is where we are called to stay committed to one another. Yes, life will get boring. Yes, things are going to get hard. Yes, you are going to want to break up. Well, sorry, that's the truth, guys. But... When we look at scripture and we see, hey, guess what? This is the community we are in. This is what God has called us to. God himself is committed to us and therefore calls us to be committed to one another. And so in these hard times, that's what we need to do and what we we choose to do because it's this outflow of God choosing to be committed to us. And because he is committed to us, he gives us the ability to be committed to one another in the dull times, in the hard times, in... I mean, even the romantic times. Yes, they do happen, but not that often. So, well, I wanted to follow that up with um, a story from our from our life. When we got married, I was in physical therapy school, and it was a very challenging time for me. It's a very difficult, very difficult school, and um, my my classmates actually had a nickname for me during that time, and my nickname, hard to believe was jinx because things bad things seemed to happen whenever anybody was with me and so this is this was literally my nickname when they told Raymond don't marry her something's gonna happen (laughs) and guess what it did as soon as we got married our house that Raymond had lived in for years before we got married our house literally started to fall apart it was sinking on one side quite literally. And, and uh, I was freaking out. He was about to leave. He was about to go um, to a new duty station, and I was going to be staying back in El Paso and finishing up school and taking care of this house that was sinking and literally um, crumbling to the ground. We had to borrow an enormous amount of money to fix it, and I had to take care of that while he was gone. And you know what he told me when that happened, and I was devastated, and I, you know, this is the very beginning of our marriage. It's this, 
This is to show you that it was not the mountaintop. It was really the bottom of an uphill climb. (laughs) Is that Raymond said, man, God must think that we are going to have an awesome marriage to give us that kind of test right off the bat. And I just looked at him like he was crazy. Like, what? No, I don't want this challenge. I don't want to start there. And he said, no, but God must consider us worthy of the challenge or he wouldn't have given it to us. I think he thinks we're going to have a great marriage. And, you know, I can, I can tell you that it was really very, very good story for, for what our marriage would look like. 22 years later, I still feel like at times we are climbing uphill. And it's hard. And it's really challenging. But he was right that God would give us what we need, what we needed, when we needed it. And he, he showed himself in amazing ways how he helped us with that whole house situation. Um, then and later in the future, how he brought that money back to us, how he took care of us when I didn't think there was any way he could, possibly. But, but that story has always been um, very um, helpful to me in understanding that marriage is a, it is a journey together. And it is hard, but God will provide. So just to add uh, some numbers to that story, um, I bought the house thinking God is going to provide a wife. It was, it was more house than I needed, but um, I, was, I was thinking I'm going to provide. And that's what, as a man, that's what you want to do. You want to provide and be able to say, hey, here's my house. Move in, honey. Within a month, that's when it happened. Um, it's hard to put a number on it, but... I basically lost, we basically lost $120,000 in the span of two years. And I don't know about you or your parents, but I don't have that kind of loose change hanging around. Um, so it was hard. But the thing is that what I told her wasn't my words. I had learned just less than five years earlier the scripture that I read all my life, but I learned it for real. And it was coming back again. And that is James chapter 1, verse 2 and 4. And you either believe this or you don't, but it is scripture. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance finishes its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God was asking us, where are you building your household? Are you building this on, on this world? Is that where your confidence is? testing of your faith so that you will not lack anything. And that's, where, that's how our, our marriage was built. Let's continue to skip the questions because we're going to run out. I feel like we've hinted at the last myth kind of in the other two, but the last myth that we want to make sure that we explicitly talk about is that your marriage will be easy if you marry the right person. And this could not be further from the truth. So when we were talking about this two weeks ago, I said that I think that this is a really good opportunity for Christians to stand in opposition to culture, which is something that we're often, like, that's a role that we're called to do. Um, Because culture tells us that when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. And in the context of marriage, that means divorce is inevitable. Um, But if, if you are, like, a faithful follower of Christ, I think that there are other options. Um, Matt Chandler states that the purpose of being a Christ Christ follower is being agents of light and order in a dark and chaotic world. And I think that Chris and I get an opportunity to do this in marriage, and that means that I can be honest about hardships. Um, Abby is one of the other leaders, and I think she's one of the people that we got married six months apart. Um, And so we kind of got to walk through that season of life together. And so Abby and I can be honest about, like, hey, Chris and I are struggling with this. Hey, her and Josh are struggling with this. But there's, it's nice to have that person that can reinforce like what the scripture says. If I was going to a non-believing friend, it, well, probably just time to get a divorce. And that's, that's not true. Um, but the reason that I can be honest with hardships and I can be honest with Chris about when I'm upset or when I'm angry or when I'm frustrated is because I believe that commitment that he is staying. So that's part of the relational desire that we have um, because of how we were created. And the longstanding commitment and choice to stay and honor and cherish is where the beauty of marriage comes in. Anybody can go to a courthouse and say, I do. But to, to make that commitment, to, to stick it out, is where we stand in opposition of culture. Like, we, you, you don't get to 
to 22 years of marriage, like, just by walking down a path. Like, it's, it's hard. Um, and, but the, the reason that this is so important is because what Ephesians 5, that they'll go over in a minute, what marriage is to show us about Christ. And so the Bible uses the imagery that we are Christ's bride, or we are the bride of Christ and that he is our bridegroom. So even when we are unlovable, even when we are messy, like Christ still choose, chose to clothe us in white um, and call us his bride and come down to us. And that's the reason I chose the song that I walked down the aisle to. So I didn't walk down to the traditional wedding, wedding march. I walked down to a song called Everby. And this song begins with what sounds like human love. So the first line of it is, your love is devoted like a ring of solid gold, a vow, <laughs> a vow that is tested like a covenant of old. And then it goes into praising God. And I think it really, like this part is really the part that I was like, okay, this is what I'm signing up for. So it says, now you're making me like you, clothing me in white making beauty from ashes, for you will have your bride, free of all her guilt and rid of all her shame, shame and known by her true name. That is why I sing, your praise will ever be on my lips. So this is the purpose of marriage, um, to make God known, to allow others to see the beauty that only he can create, because there's nothing beautiful about this in and of itself. Um, it's, it's every, anything that is beautiful between us is because of Christ, and this also completes that, like I said, the relational desire that we talked about. Um, and I read an article yesterday that I really like. They said, the strength of your marriage is directly related to your purpose in marriage. So if, if this is our purpose, it strengthens us in a way that we can't find in the world. And I like that they said, marriage can be, is an offering to God, a blessing to each other, a testimony to our friends and family, and a model of Christianity to a broken world. So that like the fact that we choose to stay, we don't have to, but we choose to, um, shows that how Christ loves us. I think oftentimes when we think about uh, marrying the right person, has anybody ever heard a guy tell a girl, God told me to marry you? I mean, maybe a little young for that, but I've heard that quite often. And it's kind of like, wait, what? Did he really? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at a marriage that wasn't so happy when God told them to go and marry that person. You guys will turn to Hosea. We're going to look at Hosea 1. So we're going to go over a little bit more gloom and doom before we get to the good part of stuff because marriage is good. We're not trying to tell you that it's bad. So, All right, so we're going to look at Hosea 1, and then you're going to look at verses 2 through 6. Uh, it says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomar, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And so she conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to give them at all. And then you've Jump down to verse 8. We're going to look at 8 and 10. And he said, When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Uh, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And if you will flip over to, stay in Hosea, over to chapter 3. We're not going to read 3, but we're going to look at the top, the title of that. In there it says that Hosea redeems his wife. So his wife here goes and cheats on him, and God has him go and get his wife back. And then we're going to go back to Hosea 2, starting in verse 16. 
and then down through the end of the chapter. Uh, It says, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow for her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and I shall say you are my God. So, looking at all of that, we see that, hey, you know, God told him to marry this person, which was the right person for him to marry, but it's not going to be a great marriage. uh, Because, well, guess what? She's going to go cheat on you, and she's going to keep doing it. And you are going to keep going back to her, and you're going to keep bringing her back. Um, The whole point of this is, I'm not saying that, hey, you're going to marry somebody, they're going to cheat on you. What I'm saying here is, this is what marriage is the picture of, is that, God is Hosea in this, and Israel is Gomer, his wife, and he keeps bringing them back. So, what is that? How does that apply to us? Well, Paul actually quotes it. Let's go to Romans real quick. So, Romans chapter 9, and we're going to look at 22 through 26. All right, so starting at 22, it says, And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? On us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As it also says in Hosea, I will call not my people my people, and she... And she who is unloved, beloved, and it will be in the place where they were told, you were not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And so we see that this is an example. Our marriages are an example of Christ and his church. And so just because you think you marry the right person doesn't mean everything's going to go great. But when everything doesn't go great, we are a picture of Christ and his church because us as believers, hey, we stray all the time. We sin all the time. And God in his great mercy shows us mercy and brings us back to himself all the time. And so for us, whenever we say we quarrel, we fight, we bicker, we, you know, name it, we've done it kind of thing. Um, Whenever we do that, we become a picture of Christ and his church to one another And we forgive one another, and we work through these things, showing each other Christ. And because it's not for one another that we live, but it's for the glory of God that we live. And it's for being sanctified. It's for Christ whom we live. And that is the point of marriage. And it makes marriage really good when you when you understand this because there's times when we don't understand it and we kind of start feeling bleh and we're getting frustrated with each other and we're like well why are we getting frustrated with each other all the time well it's because we're not in the word it's because we are not being christ to one another and when we be christ to one another things go really well between us so once things start going bad we're kind of like well have you really been studying the word recently? Have you been doing this recently? Have you been seeking after Christ recently? And oftentimes it's kind of like, uh, not so much. So, Okay, so I appreciate your attention throughout all this. I uh, hope you see um, the spectrum of newlywed uh, versus a couple of decades. It's the same story, and that's what your story needs to be. Whether you choose to marry or remain single, everything you do needs to be pointed towards the glorification of God. You are a witness in what you do. Uh, there are several passages that talk about marriage that we often go to. Colossians 3 is one of them. First Peter 2 is another. Ephesians 5 is another. It talks about all the roles, 
responsibilities as a husband, as a wife, even as children, what, what you play. But at the end of Ephesians 5, uh, after just going through what a husband should be and what a wife should be, uh, Paul says this. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about the Christ and the church. It's like he's saying, I'm sorry, did you think this was about you? Did you think this was a, a, a rule book on how to be a good husband and wife? No, I'm talking about Christ and the church. So if you go back and read it, and I'm just going to read the highlights. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body. As the church submits to Christ, wives submit to your, your husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands have to love their wives as their own bodies, just as Christ does the church, because the two will become one flesh. So what, I, what we are up here pointing to, and when you are in, in life, going through life with a husband or a wife, you need to constantly be saying, look, you think we have it together. It is not us. It is Christ. And we and, and constantly saying, this points to Christ. When you go through struggles in your home in, in the future, just say, this is how God and, and his church are is constant tension. And yet he constantly, his love never fails. His love is everlasting. And we push through. And, and that is what our, our marriages do. And, and this is what we, our prayer is for you. Uh, to, we, we're out of time for questions, but we just want you to think about that. Whenever you go to the movies, whenever you, go, you see other couples or whatever, are they living the marriage that the world says is a successful, happy marriage? Or, are they, or is their marriage pointing to Christ and the church? That is why we live. That is what we testify. In everything we do, we testify to the glory of God. Um, I'm going to close in prayer. Um, and again, just... just uh, <clears throat> Oh, let's just pray to God. Our God, our Father, we love you so much, and, and we come to you, uh, our heads bowed, knowing that we are not worthy of, of anything that you have provided us, yet you love us so much. And we pray, God, over these children, um, we pray that they will have the right perspective on marriage, they can see you in it. Just, we just pray for their wisdom and, and understanding uh, in everything that they do that they can glorify you, whether they choose to remain single or whether they get married, that they will always see it in all things as Christ's love for the church and the church's submission to Christ. We pray that you can be glorified in their lives. In the name of Jesus, amen.